Um, we, if, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that uh, as of late, like the last six months, I'm obsessed with one thing, uh, and I cannot let it go. I, I feel like the Lord is just causing me. I've never been so intent on a topic in my life. I've never been so repetitious on a topic in my life, but it's not the kind of thing, I don't even feel bad about it. Uh, it's not the kind of thing we get the first time through or the tenth, tenth time through. Uh, we need this over and over again, and what I'm talking about is love. We're, uh, we, we've dealt with love and the knowledge of good and evil, and uh, spent uh, a number of weeks on that. Then more recently, we dealt with love and judgment, how judgment is the antithesis of love, walking as judges rather than lovers. I now want to uh, uh, have a series that is um, really just looking at love itself and asking the question, what is it, how do we do it, what does it look like, and what about these questions, what about these circumstances, making it very, very practical. And it just makes sense that that's going to be our topic, that uh, we should take 1 Corinthians 13 as our launching uh, point. I'm going to be going through 1 Corinthians 13, pulling in a lot of other passages as we go through this. But I want to title this series something like Love Is, or maybe a little bit more enticing. Um, we'll get more visitors for sure if we advertise this. How to become a uh, passionate lover. How's that? How to become a passionate lover. Uh, how to become an outrageous lover. There's nothing more central than this. Uh, this is the foundation for everything. Uh, so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongue of men or of angels, but have not love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, an irritating piece of religious noise. That's what he's saying. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, say to this mountain, be removed, and it's removed. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to the poor and even surrender my body to the flames sacrificially, but don't have love, I am nothing. L love is patient. Love is kind. Love is etc., etc., etc. That's what we'll, we'll, we'll be getting at in the weeks to come. Now, I've spent uh, a, a good amount of time talking about the first three verses of this chapter. Uh, I've woven it into a number of messages. I really don't need to go over it again. Except to say this, it's very, very, very important. Uh, let it land on us. You can have the gift of tongues, even of uh, tongues of angels, and that's a wonderful thing. But if you don't have love, it's zero. And you can have prophetic gifts and understand all mysteries. You can be sought after by the world because you are so dang smart. You can have all knowledge, and you can have faith, incredible faith that moves mountains, but if you don't have love, if it's not done out of love for the purpose of furthering love, it counts for zero. You can give your body to be burned to all sorts of wonderful charitable deeds, but if you don't have love, if it's not fueled by love, motivated by love with the purpose of expanding love, it counts for nothing. Zippo, nadie. Uh, fine, what are some other words for, for zip? Uh, yes, you, know, you get the impression. It may do a lot of things. You can build great churches, have great church services, have wonderful sermons, great songs, you know, impress people, uh, being Christianity today every other month. But if, if what's behind it isn't love and if what results from it isn't love, it just doesn't count for anything of kingdom value. It is that, it is that love is that much of an all or nothing deal. It really is that. 
And we don't normally think like that, and that's why I am so intent on hammering this home. Discipleship, if it's about anything, it's about becoming an outrageous lover. If we get love down, we find Paul says, and James says, and Jesus says, if you do love, you fulfill all the law, but if you don't do love, then it doesn't matter else what you do fulfill, it's not of kingdom value. The center of the center is love. So being a disciple is first and foremost about learning to grow in outrageous love. This is Christianity 101, and it's Christianity PhD. And I know there are people that are saying, oh, wow, 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 you know, that's so simple, that's so elementary, that's so what? I will listen to that if they are, in fact, an outrageous Christ-like lover. And until that is the case, then, 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 uh, then this, this needs to be their goal as well. This is something we never grow out of. We never can get used to hearing, and we can never put this one on the shelf. This is it. The church is to have the reputation that Jesus had, and the, the central reputation that Jesus had was being an outrageous lover, the kind of lover that made him attractive to prostitutes and tax collectors. Uh, but instead, as we've said so many times, the church on the whole has much more of a re- reputation for being religious, for being angry, uh, you know, for, for having our, cru- our moralistic crusades, for being thought police and moral police. And we have a lot of reputation. But unfortunately, what's not usually part of that reputation is that we're outrageously loving, which is why we don't have tax collectors and prostitutes just wanting to hang around with us because they feel uh, the, the worth that we affirm for them. Instead, the church as a whole largely has a spirit of Phariseeism, and the prostitutes ran from the Pharisees like they run from the church. It's got to be turned around, and for that to happen, we're going to have to get this piece down, love. Now, the, question, the first question we've got to ask is, what is love? And the thing I want to say this morning is this. 1 Corinthians will tell us a lot of things about what love is, but what screams at me at the beginning is what is missing from this account. And what's missing from this account is the thing that our culture usually identifies with love. And that is that love is a feeling. Paul never says love is that feeling that gives you goosebumps, makes your eyes roll, take off your shoes and put it in the refrigerator because you're just knocked off your feet. That charge, that surge of euphoria you get as you fall in love. Paul never associates love with any feeling. He associates it with a lot of deeds. He associates it with a commitment, but he doesn't associate it with a feeling. But in our culture, if we're honest about it, our culture almost exclusively identifies love as a feeling. You fall into it. You fall out of it. Uh, it, It's like like a rash you get or something. It's it's, it's like, oh, I got a bad case of it. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of love and blues. You know, no cure is going to whatever that song goes like. It's like, it just happens to you. It's just, boom, all of a sudden I have it. You know, and I, most of our songs are about this, or a lot of our songs are about this. I saw a CD in, in the store the other day, uh, and it was called Falling In and Out of Love, and it was a collection of all these sappy love songs about falling in and falling out of love. And of course, most of them were country western. But uh, that, that's what our, our culture sees as being love. You know, uh, the songs are all about this. I just... My favorite, and it is the classic of all time, for those of you who are over 40, you'll know what I'm talking about. And I drummed in the first service, so I thought I might as well sing in the second service. So I wanna, I just wanna, I'm just using this as an illustration. No, no, I'm not going to. Believe me, it's better than Born to be Wild. What a heckler crowd we have here. No, but you remember the Righteous Brothers? This just is so perfect. You know, it's, uh, and I've always wanted to sing this. You never close your eyes. Anymore when you kiss my lips. Remember it? 
And there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it. But baby, baby, I know it. Join with me. You've lost that love and feeling. Oh, that love and feeling. You've lost that love and feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, and that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. I see it. You guys had more volume on that than the worship service. Come on. We've we got to check this out. But see, our, this, is, this is the idea that culture has. When the feeling's gone, the love is gone, so it's time to trade up. This is why, part of the reason why divorce is so rampant in the culture. You know, you lost that love and feeling. You don't have that, 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 that buzz anymore. You know, it just doesn't feel warm and tickly. And so the love must be gone. And what do you know? Another person comes along who gives you that warm and tickly, goosebumply, take my shoes off, put them in the refrigerator kind of a feeling. So I can't help it. It's just the way I am. This happens to me. And so, boom, they leave for a, another show. Trouble is that that show also loses its love and feeling. And, uh, and so it goes and so it goes. Trying to... Live off of that loving feeling is like trying to live life with the exhilaration you get when you jump with a bungee cord. You know, there's a wonderful, that is a wonderful feeling. It's nature's way of getting us to say, I do. Uh, it is a good place for it. I'm, I am romantic. I love, I love, you know, but, but if you're living for that, if you think that's the definition of love, well, then, then you're just living in a, in a surreal world. It's not going to happen. But that's the impression you get from our culture. Our culture on the whole places an unprecedented authority on feelings. There's never been a culture that's, that's uh, done this before. Most cultures know better. Feelings are not reliable guides to anything. But our culture, uh, if you feel it, it's got to be true. We define love by feeling. We define truth by feeling. There are people who, uh, in fact, it's sort of the kind of postmodern culture who will say, you know, I don't think that's true because I really don't like it. It doesn't make me feel good. I don't like that thought, so it can't be true. As though your feelings had anything to do with truth. You don't think that way when you go to the doctor and find out that you've got a growth on your colon. Well, I don't like that thought, therefore it's not true. It doesn't make me feel good. Reality isn't here to conform to your feelings. Let's see, there's this weird, weird thing we've got in this culture that, that somehow your feelings are a guide to truth. There are believers who sometimes question whether God loves them because they don't feel it. I don't feel God's presence. I don't feel God's love. Uh, God must therefore, since feelings are a guide to reality, God must therefore not love me or God must therefore be present. You see, and we draw conclusions about reality on the basis of our feelings. It really is a, uh, a sinister trick. Feelings are, are, in the end, a chemical reaction in the brain. Did you know that? It's a chemical reaction in the brain. You ever gone and got a root canal or, or, or something like that done, and they give you some of that nice chemical-altering funny stuff? And uh, you know what? You feel really good. You, you know, hey, pull out another tooth. You know, it's... It, it's it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's great because it's a legal high. You know, it's like, well, I, I had to get my tooth pulled out, so I had to get high, you know. Uh, but, uh, and so, you know, what all this is doing is it's altering the chemicals in your brain, and all of a sudden you feel really good. You know, it's like wonderful. You want to go to the dentist again just to get that, you know, kind of buzz. But see, it's a chemical thing. When we think thoughts, 
we see pictures, we hear words. That's how the mind operates. It's a fundamental uh, supposition that we, we teach in TNT. We think in words and pictures, not words and pictures, not with information. And every one of those words and pictures are a chemical reaction in our brain. And that's what the feeling is all about. Our feelings are responses to what's going on in our head. It's not responses to what's going on outside of our head. And if you'll, if you'll land this, it's worth the price of admission this morning. I mean, this is a ticket to freedom. We are, your emotions, all your emotions are responses to stuff, chemical reactions, neurological transactions between dendrites and axions that are going on in your head. I can go to one person in the congregation and say, you know what? I think you're dumb, fat, and ugly. And they'll laugh. <laughs> because maybe they know that they're so beautiful I must be off. Or maybe they know that they're so smart they can't be dumb. Or maybe I just don't have any credibility with them. Or maybe they know that I like to play jokes so they think I'm joking. Um, but they laugh at it. I go to another person and I say, I would never do this, by the way, but hypothetically, you're dumb, fat, and ugly. And they start crying, they break down, the world's coming to an end. Now, how can the same physical, external cause have such different effects? It's because what's going on in the head of both of those people is very, very different. In the case of the one, the way they represent the meaning of what I said, the pictures and the words that they they hear and that they see are, uh, are funny. You know, it's, it's, it's not a serious thing at all. But the other person, you say you're dumb, fat, and ugly, and what they get is, is, is a, a, a memory, perhaps, of, of boys teasing them in seventh grade on the, on the playground, and all of a sudden they respond to that. Feelings are a response to that. See, we really need to land on this. If you think that God doesn't love you, or you, feel, you don't feel like God loves you, and you don't feel like God is present, um, that tells me a whole lot about what's going on in your head, but it doesn't say a thing about what's going on in reality. Because I'm here to tell you that God does love you, and He is present with you. Um, uh, the, the issue here, amen, the issue is what's going on between your ears. And what I know is this, you're seeing your picture of God, and the words that you hear when you think about God. And your picture of yourself is such that anybody who saw what you saw would have the same feelings that you're feeling right now. I'm not loved, God doesn't love me, God's not present, or whatever. The solution is not to try to not to have the feelings. The solution is to ignore the feelings and pay attention to how your brain's working. The solution is to change what's going on in your brain. This is why the Bible says that the key to transformation is the renewing of your mind. Paul says, Romans 12, 2. Be tra- don't be conformed to the pattern of this world anymore, the pattern of the external, the pattern of the lies that you've absorbed, the pattern of the experiences that you've had, the things that you've heard in the media, the things that you heard on country western songs. Don't be conformed to that any longer. Don't let that be going on in your head, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Make new over and over again the truth of who God is in Jesus Christ and the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ. And run movies of it, run videos of it. It says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we're to take every thought, we are to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. You are a spirit being and this is your organic computer and in God's design, you're supposed to program it. Unfortunately, for 99.9% of the people, 99.9% of what's programmed in the brain, they didn't do. It came from mom, it came from dad, it came from ex-boyfriend, it came from ex-husband, it came from the car accident, it came from the media, it came from the songs, it came from the TV, it came from the movies, it came from the pattern of this world. And as long as that's what's going on in your brain, you're going to be feeling according to it. Here's, here's sort of the, the uh, uh, device of the enemy. We, we uh, call this in TNT the diabolical double bind. Diabolical double bind. You could call it the Luciferian loop. Here's how it works. There's a pattern of the world. The pattern of the world is simply the way we've been programmed to think and feel about things based on television, songs, upbringing, you, you name it. 
Though that pattern of the world then forms our thoughts and our thoughts are coded, represented as words and pictures. Those words and pictures were neurologically wired to feel in response to them. And so they create a feeling. They create a feeling of fear. Maybe they create a feeling of despair, of hopelessness. They create a feeling of phobias. They create a feeling of anxiety, whatever. And here's the, 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 the diabolical double bind. If someone comes along and says, you know what, you're not dumb and fat and ugly, but in Jesus Christ, you're lovable and you've got the mind of Christ and, and you're beautiful um, and, and you know, you're radiant bright. It, that doesn't feel true. It's like that can't be true because I don't feel it. But see, the reason you don't feel it is because your feelings are a response not to what is real, but to how you're representing what is real. So the feeling ends up confirming the thoughts. You're used to it. It feels true to you. And if, you, if you're using feelings as a guide to what is true, you're going to be stuck in this loop forever. There's no getting out of it. The thoughts create the feelings, and the feelings confirm the thoughts, which further create the feelings, which further confirm the thoughts, and it goes on and on and on. The, 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 the ticket to freedom is to understand that, uh, that, that, that the, the feelings are not a guide to truth. Bracket them. Sometimes you've got right ones and sometimes you've got misguided ones, but don't pay any attention or put any authority into either one. In God's design, this is how the believer, as you grow in Christ, this is how the mature believer should orchestrate their inner world. The Word of God should tell us what is true. Whether we feel it or not, the Word of God should tell us what is true. Unless you're able, and then the Word of God should create the thoughts and the pictures and the words that are going on in, in, in our head. Unless you can picture yourself on the lap of Jesus Christ as he's loving you outrageously, as he's seeing you as his precious daughter, uh, it, despite your feelings, you'll never ever get the feeling that you are a child of God. To, to give one example. If the fact that it doesn't feel true causes you to push away those thoughts, then you'll never come under the authority of, of the word of God. You'll never experience and walk in the truth of who you are in Christ. Bracket the feeling, whether you feel it or not. Know that this is true. Know that this is true. What God says about you has more credibility to you than your feelings. Because your feelings are the result of what dad said about you or what mom said about you or whatever. Don't give that credibility. Give the word of God credibility. That creates the thoughts and the feelings. Let that run virtual reality movies of that. A holographic, spend time just, not just knowing the truth, but seeing it and hearing it as you dwell with the Lord. And what you'll find is that in time, feelings, appropriate feelings come. You begin to feel like you're loved by God. Now, some days they're there and some days they're not because we're complex creatures and feelings are fickle and chemical reactions and there may be chemical imbalances in your brain. I don't know. But it comes as a result of having true representations in your head. Don't get your mind to line up with the Word of God in order to try to chase the feeling. Don't chase feelings at all. Don't worry about feelings at all. They'll come. Maybe. But who cares if they don't? What matters is that your mind's lining up with the truth of the Word of God. So long as we give our feelings that much credibility, so long as the feelings are a guide to truth for us, and this really gets to the point I want to make this morning, we'll never love like God tells us to love. It's not going to happen. If, if, uh, if you're giving authority to your feelings, you'll never walk in love, because you'll always assume that love is a feeling. Paul says, we've seen this before, live in love. Live in love. This is, this, is, this is supposed to be, as long as you're alive, love. Never turn off the love button until you're dead. And then you won't have to. Okay, so this is to characterize our life. Uh, this is, in one sense, the air we breathe. All right? We are to live, breathe, think, eat, sleep, love. Live in love. 
But there's no way you can live in a feeling. If you think love is about feeling good towards people, getting warm, gushly feelings towards them, having this tingly affection towards all people, it's not going to happen. Most of the time we feel flat. You know, it's just, you see a stranger, you don't feel anything towards them. Unless there's something you don't like, and then you feel a dislike towards them, you see? But you're not going to feel a, a natural sort of affection towards everybody, or, you know, right, right off the get-go. No one can walk in a feeling. Feelings come and feelings go. You can't live in love if you think love is a feeling. Let's use the hardest test case, case example. Jesus says this. He dares to say this. In the natural, this makes no sense. It's only if you're thinking with a spiritual mind that this begins to make any sense at all. And this is the radical edge of being a disciple of Christ. The distinctive thing that the church is to be. We are to love our enemies. We are to do good to those who hate us. Now think about this. There's no way you're going to love your enemies if you think love's about a feeling. Because an enemy is an enemy probably because you don't feel good about them. No one feels good about, about someone harming them. How do you feel good about your ex-spouse who's not paying any alimony and trying to turn the, kid, turn the kids against you? How are you? You supposed to get warm fuzzies over that one? No. How do you feel good about someone who just ripped you off in the used car lot and, and, and uh, you know, now you can't get your money back and the car's a lemon and, and he knew it ahead of time? You don't feel good and warm and fuzzy about that. How do you feel good about Osama bin Laden? Eh. I'm not even sure it, it, we're supposed to try to feel good about that. But we are supposed to love him and love them. Love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. You don't feel good about that stuff. But that doesn't mean that we don't love. Now, let me, let me break it down even further. This is a teaching I gave about four years ago. I did a whole sermon on it. I'm just going to say a word about it right now. But it really helps clarify some things. Um, in the Greek language, as opposed to the English language, there's four different words for love. Four different words, and they all denote something uh, a little bit distinctive. First, there's the word storge. Storge is, is, is a love that is, it, it just means an affection for things, uh, an affection for a characteristic, an affection for an object. Uh, you like something about someone. I love your dress. I love your dress. Well, that's storge. I don't love your dress the way I love my wife. I don't love to dress the way I love a friend. I don't love the... See, we use the one word to cover all these categories, and it's really unfortunate because it screws people up. But I, in a sense, I do... I just... I storge your dress. I storge your hair. I storge the way you sing. I storge your smile. That's a kind of a love. Wonderful. You could characterize this love as a looking at. The stance you take with storge is you look at something. You look at the hair. You look at your car. You look at this, that, and the other thing. And there's, an, there's a feeling of affection there. That's storge. Uh, a second kind of love is philios. Philios is brotherly love. It's camaraderie. It's, it's companionship. Uh, this is the kind of love that, that you have with friends of yours. You, you, you love them. Now, you don't love them the way you love your spouse, you know, but uh, there's a difference there. But, but this is a, a true and valuable and necessary kind of love. This kind of love uh, is, uh, I could, you could characterize it as looking with someone. Looking with someone. Picture two people looking side by side at the same object. Friends don't look into each other. Uh, you know, they, they, don't, they don't get together and talk about their relationship and, and look into each other's eyes very much at all. But they, they do, it gets a little weird if you do that, but they do look alongside of each other. They have a common life experience, a common goal perhaps, you know, and they share some things in common. So they do life together looking side by side at something else. And there's a love that is there. 
So you have storge uh, looking at something. You have philios, which is looking with someone. And then, of course, there's always the precious eros, which we get the word erotic from. And it's a kind of a love. Um, and this is ro- romantic love. This is erotic love, sensual, sexual love. Uh, it is intimacy love. This is the kind of love that is meant uh, for a husband and wife. Um, and you grow into that as you're moving in that direction. This kind of love, where Storge is looking at something and Phileos is looking with someone, uh, Eros is looking into someone. You stare into their eyes late at night. Watery eyes that are like oceans. Your eyes are like two round circles with black dots in the middle. <laughs> oh, I'm, my poetry is good. Um, you know, but it, it, it's that kind of a thing. It, it's, it's the soul-touching sort of a thing, and, and it, it's wonderful. The fourth kind of love, and I bet most of you know this, is what? Agape. Agape is a distinct kind of love. It is not, it doesn't have anything to do with feelings. Uh, eros does, and philios to some degree does, though good friendships survive down times of feelings, but there's, there's usually a feeling that is there. Storge is all about feelings, uh, but agape, this is the kind of love that God has, this is the kind of love we're commanded to have. It, it does, it, it's not about a feeling at all. It is a commitment to ascribe worth to another at cost to oneself. Okay, it's a commitment and an act. And whereas... Uh, Storge is looking at something and Phileos is looking with someone and Eros is looking into someone. Agape is blind because agape isn't about finding anything out there at all. It it, it doesn't have to do with with the relative merits of the person. Uh, It is rather something you do to the person. It's it's an outward thing. You ascribe worth to them. It's blind to the Storge issues, the Eros issues, the Phileos issues, and it just describes worth to the person. It's blind, but in another sense, it's a most profound kind of seeing. Because when you commit to looking past the externals of a person and looking as God looks at a person and ascribing the worth that God ascribes to to the person, you see something in the person that other people can't see. You're seeing the most precious thing about them, and that is the worth they have before God because of Jesus Christ. The the, the definition of agape love is Jesus Christ. Uh, John says this in 1 John chapter 3, that here's how we know God's agape for us, that, he, that, that Jesus Christ died for us. He, he laid down his life for us, and that's why we're to have that agape love for all others. We're to lay down our life for them. He did it for us, we do it for them. It's defined as a deed, a commitment and a deed that affirms worth to another at cost to oneself, and, and the, the quintessential expression of it is the person of, of, of Jesus Christ. It's a unilateral kind of thing. Now, let, let me say this. Marriage. Let me say a word about marriage. When you take the vow, for better or for worse, I will love you till death do us part. The only kind of love you can possibly mean is agape. And that is, in fact, the kind of love that, that you're committing to. You can't commit to storge. You know, you may like their hair one year, but the next year they, they, they changed it. And it's like, yeah. Why did you screw up your hair? I really liked your hair, you know? Well, but you still love them. You, you, you know, you can store their body, but their body may change. In fact, it's going to change, all right? Just land on that one. You know, you can't say, I will storge this about you for the rest of your life, because that can change. Storge comes and storge goes, but agape is there forever. You can't promise eros uh, your whole life. You know 
there, there are, there's times where you, you really are hitting the romance button and it's good and it's wonderful and there's intimacy and, and you know, wow, this is wonderful. Uh, but then there's times where it's not like that. Amen. And there's times where it's just, you know, it, it's, it's kind of flat. You're just not there. You're not in the mood. You know, it, it, it just isn't there. But you still can love them. You can't promise lifelong arrows. Can't promise lifelong storge. It's even hard to promise like lifelong stilios. If you're married, there are times where you really are uh, either sharing friendships. But there are times in a lot of marriages where you don't feel like you're friends. You really don't even like each other. You see, because those things depend on, you know, uh, a lot of circumstances. Now, in a marriage, it's good to strive for storge. It really is helpful if you like a few things about one another. <laughs> you know, storge, it, it, it's really a positive thing. But the marriage isn't based on it. It's good to strive for philios. And a healthy marriage has that friendship where you're in each other's world and you're looking with each other at, at, at common uh, tasks that you have and you're sharing life together. But it's not based on that. And it's good. It's very good to have eros in a marriage and to strive for that. And whether you have it or not will depend a lot upon how you're thinking about your spouse because all feelings are responses to representations. Remember that. And it's good to have that. But marriage isn't based on that. What marriage is based on is agape. This, this commitment. Paul says this in Ephesians 5. Husbands and wives, submit yourself to one another, which means come under one another and, and love each other as Christ loves the church. We are called to affirm the worth of the other. And that isn't something you can fall in of and fall out of. It's something you choose. You see, it's a choice you make at the core of your being. You can fall in and out of eros, in and out of storge, and even in and out of philios. But you can't fall in and out of agape. You have to choose to get out of it, and you have to choose to get into it. And this is why agape is the most profound kind of love. It's a love that is there, that arises from the core of your being. It has nothing to do with the chemical reactions in your brain. It's a commitment you make, and when there's feelings there, wonderful. When there's not feelings there, just as well, you ascribe worth to the other person. And this is the stance. It, it takes different forms and different contexts, but the fundamental stance of the disciple of Christ is to be an agape person. An agape person who is going to ascribe the worth that God ascribes to another person at all times, in all situations, no ifs, ands, or buts. It is, I believe, the most fundamental distinguishing stance of the believer. Uh, this is the distinguishing mark of the disciple. First uh, John is all about this. Jesus said that they shall know you by your love. We are to have a stance, an agape stance, towards all people at all times. It doesn't mean, we've we got to just get this clear, it doesn't mean that we store gay things about people. It just means that we affirm their worth. It doesn't mean that we want to be best friends with people or friends at all. There are some people you should stay away from, but you still affirm their worth. It doesn't mean that you want to be romantically involved with them, but it does mean that you affirm their worth. Now, they may be think that if you don't want to be romantically involved, then you hate them. They may think that if you don't like their hair, then you're a, you're a mean person. They may think that if you don't want to be their friend, then how can you say that you love them? But see, we're talking agape here, not, not storge, eros, or philios. We're talking agape. Our stance is to affirm the unsurpassable worth that every human being has because they're created in the image of God and Jesus Christ died for them. Now, with that background, I want to ask this question. Very practically, how do we love our enemies who probably by definition are people that we don't storge, don't philios, and don't eros? Uh, how do we love them? And this is the test case. If, if you can love your enemies, then you can love everybody. 
This is the most extreme example. So so how, how do we do this? Agape love involves the whole person. It's like worship. It involves the whole person. And we are composed of spirit, soul, and body. Spirit being the core of who you are, the essence of who you are. Soul being the, the thoughts and the feelings that you have, your experienced self. And body, of course, being your body. It involves all three. And I want to talk about three dimensions or three, three commitments in agape love that correspond to these three parts. First of all, it starts with this. And this is the most fundamental thing. In the core of your being, as a spirit being, you commit to being an agape person. You commit to striving for Christ-likeness and how you love prostitutes, tax collectors, your enemies, and all people that you come in contact with. A fundamental commitment. This isn't a promise that you're going to be successful at this. Because I can assure you that before the day is over, and maybe before we get out of the parking lot, you will have failed in some respect at doing this, and so will I. But the commitment is to say, this is the direction I'm going to go. It's metanoia. It's a turning. It's a repentance. Saying, I'm no longer going to live on the basis of my feelings. I'm going to live as an agape person whose, whose central job is to ascribe worth to all people at all times in all situations. No ifs, ands, or buts. Okay? It's a commitment of the will. It's a resolve of the spirit. I'm going to, Lord, this is my commitment. You stake your claim here. And you come back to it again and again and again. This commitment, if we really make it and follow it through with intentionality, it is the executioner of the flesh. Nothing will put the flesh, uh, if you know what I'm talking about here, the flesh is that whole mindset and worldview outside of Christ, that whole self, that self-centered living that the fallen human nature has. Uh, this puts this to death. You can't both live in agape love and live a self-centered existence. The two are antithetical. It starts with a commitment. Lord, this is the direction I want to move. Secondly, it involves our soul. It involves our thought. It involves, there's a commitment and an act, and the first act is one in the mind. You decide to agree, consciously agree with God about the worth of all people because of Jesus Christ. And you represent them as such. You choose to see past. Love hides a multitude of sins. You choose to see past with the externals that you notice, the storge issues, the eros issues, the filios issues, and, the, and, and you choose rather to ascribe, to agree with God in ascribing unconditional, unsurpassable worth to every person that you meet as a, as a person made in the image of God and one for whom Christ died. It's, uh, I, I hope you can see here why, how, why it is that judgment is antithetical to agape love. We've been talking about this. Do you see why now? Judgment is ascribing a conclusion to a person that is a deficit of worth. That worthless person. That hypocrite. That, you know, loose person. That whatever. Okay, we, we, we draw a conclusion as though we were God, as though we knew all the details of their life. We draw a conclusion, and the conclusion is a detraction of worth. That's a judgment. Agape love is the opposite. Agape love affirms, despite whatever appearances there are, it affirms uh, the unsurpassable worth of the person. And you can't both be affirming the unsurpassable worth and detracting from the worth. You see how that goes? Now, you can discern things, as I said before. Discernment, several weeks ago, we made a distinction between discernment and, and uh, judgment. Judgment separates people. Discernment separates things. You can 
You can look at a person and there's, you know, storge stuff you like and uh, other stuff you don't like. You can look at a person and say, well, this person would be really be a friend of mine or maybe this is a person that I really need to stay away from. You can look at a person and, and say, this is a person I could be romantically involved in or this is not a person I'd ever want to be romantically involved with. You can do all of that and still affirm their unconditional worth. That's about discernment. Discernment attaches to storge. It attaches to eros. It attaches to philios. But, but agape attaches to the inherent worth of the person. And that's why judgment is antithetical to love. You can't do both at the same time. Which is why in, in the two central commands in the Bible, positive and negative, do agape love, don't judge. And the two are two sides of the same coin. Another way of saying it is simply this. Don't eat of the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the core sin because it blocks the most fundamental thing we're to be doing in life, and that is outrageous agape lovers of all people at all times and all circumstances. Let me also say this. Many times what blocks all this is uh, the judgment of unforgiveness towards a person. They've wronged you. They've done something. They've detracted from your value. And you want to hold them accountable as though you were God. And so you hold this, you, you walk in this awareness of this deficit. And you draw a conclusion about them based on this deficit. Forgiveness is simply letting go of that judgment. It's letting go of that judgment. It's just saying, God, you, there's one lawgiver. The Bible says, James 4.12, one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy, who then are you to judge your neighbor? It's simply saying, God, you will, you'll even out the, the accounts later on. That's your job. I'm not going to walk in that. Because when you walk in it, it destroys you. You walk in unforgiveness, it eats you alive. It pollutes you. And the only one who pays for it is you. So God says, release it. Don't judge. Just release it. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not, okay, now I trust this person. Because maybe the person isn't trustworthy. It's not, okay, now we're going to be best friends. Because maybe this is not a person you ever want to be best friends with. Forgiveness is not about having a warm affection for them. It's simply about affirming their worth and therefore letting go of, of the judgment. A person talked to me several months ago and was really wrestling with his love message and basically said this, my father thinks I don't love him. And I asked why. He said, well, because he sexually abused me when I was a child. And now I'm older and, he, and, and we're going to go away, away, away on vacation and he wants to babysit my little children. And I, 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 I forgive him, but I just don't trust him uh, to watch my kids. And, and he's saying that I haven't forgiven him and I don't love him. And see, there's a difference between storge and, and philios and agape. This woman need, needs to release that, that, that unforgiveness, as she has, and affirm the unsurpassable worth of her father. But whether he's trust, trustworthy or not is a different issue. That's a totally different issue. And that's a matter, she, she has agape love for her children, so it's really an act of love. If you think this is not trustworthy, I love for my kids. Dad, I forgive you, but I just don't trust you in this. And maybe that's my issue, or maybe you're really not trustworthy. I maybe can't decide that, but I do forgive you. You see, it's, it's a very different thing. So many Christians walk around in condemnation because they don't get goosebumps upon people that they, they think they've forgiven, and they think they haven't forgiven them because they don't have the goosebumps back. Forget the feeling stuff. It's a, it's a commitment of the will. Just release them. Turn them over to God. And then pay attention to how you represent it in your, your mind. Um, all feelings are a response to the pictures and words that we have in our minds. And so it really helps if as you're walking in life, living in love, you pay attention to the pictures you have of people in, uh, 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 in your mind. Um, how do you represent them? Are the storge, eros, philios issues predominant in your mind? Do you walk with this, the awareness of what you like and don't like about them? Or do you, do you represent their inherent worth in some way? 
The way I do in my head, representing inherent worth, as I've shared before, is that uh, I picture this light beam of God's love, this, this like, big bright beam coming down over them. And it's just it's a way of, of, of representing to me the worth that they have. Lately, I, I've, the Lord's kind of given me a picture of a cross above each of their heads. You're in the mall, and I'm seeing all these crosses just showering love on, on, on these people. And it's like, my job is to agree with that. Lord, that person has unsurpassable worth. It's an act of the mind. That person has unsurpassable And that person has unsurpassable worth. And you just walk affirming that. You bless them. You look past everything else, and you bless them. And what you may find is that feelings for them begin to arise a feeling of compassion, and a feeling of love. Because you're choosing to see as God sees, and now you begin to experience what God experiences. Okay? You begin to feel what God feels. And it is, I think, the most beautiful feeling in the world. I just spoke with a couple after the first service who, are just, who had for the first time this experience. They were at this one camp. And they just learned how to collapse the judgment and learn how to do the, the worth affirmation. And, and it was like, a, it was like a, a mystical, spiritual experience for them. And it was the most beautiful thing in the world because now you're residing in the heart of Christ. Having said all that, don't do this to get the feeling. Forget the feeling. Don't pay any attention to feelings. Everybody say after me, I will not pay any attention to my feelings. They'll come if they're supposed to come, but, but worry about how you are representing them in their mind. And the third thing is this. If you, walk, if you walk with this mindset, walk with this commitment, walk with this action going on in your mind, you will find a thousand opportunities a day to act on it. Ways of showing worth to people by what you say, that's a bodily thing, and by what you do. You'll, you'll just see it there. Um, we, we miss these because we're not walking in love. We're not looking for them. But if your eyes are open and you're just, just going along enjoying life, affirming the worth of the people around you, um, uh, you'll see opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to, to, uh, to love outrageously. It may be something small like a smile, uh, a, a word, a pat on the back, helping them with the groceries, opening the door for someone. Uh, you'll see it and you affirm their worth. It may be something great like giving your life for them. Either way, it's kingdom stuff. I really believe, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's found in the smallness of things. We think the kingdom of God is the Billy Graham crusade, and that's certainly, God uses that. But I believe it's the, the million little tiny acts of love that we do that more than anything else plants seeds for the kingdom of God to grow. And, uh, and, and we need to attend to it. The stuff that nobody sees, nobody notices, nobody will congratulate you on, but you're just walking with the awareness of that. And every day and every person is an opportunity to do it. That's the beautiful thing about this. You don't need to, to wait even three minutes after the sermon to try it on. Look at all the people around you. We've got 2,000 opportunities to love right here. And, and, and it's, it's a smile, it's a pat on the back, it's, it, 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 it's whatever. Let's close our eyes. I want to I wanna end with this. A little, little spiritual exercise. Holy Spirit, be in this place. How many here will commit... Right now, you'll commit not to being successful at all this. You can't promise that. But you commit to being an agape person. You want to live in love. Will you just before God raise your hands? I, I want to commit to being this outrageous, loving kind of, of person. Wonderful, wonderful. Commit to God. Okay, those of you committed. Second question. I want you to picture right now a person in your mind that you have trouble loving. Maybe even an enemy. Get a picture of them in your mind. And now let's start applying this commitment. Hear the Lord say to you, 
or ask you, will you agree with me, whatever you feel, will you agree with me that this person has unsurpassable worth because I paid the highest price for them? And in your spirit, just say yes, Lord. Agree. And now ask the Lord to represent that somehow. Maybe it's the beam of light coming down on them. Maybe they just begin to glow. Maybe somehow see what God sees. Try to see what God sees. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. And you may notice that your feelings towards them change as you do it. The cross is behind them. Picture Jesus looking at them with eyes of of love and compassion. Just agree with God and say, I affirm the worth of that person. The final thing is this. I want you to begin to ask now, but make this an assignment throughout the week. Ask the Lord, Lord, are there any acts that I can do to this person, either in word or deed, that will affirm what I just said, that will affirm to them the worth that I see? And maybe if this is a dangerous person, you maybe it's going to stay in the mind. But for others, is there something that the Lord would have you to do? An act of kindness that would affirm in some small way their worth before God. And then will you commit to moving in and doing that? Moving into that area and doing that? Holy Spirit, be moving here, Lord. Solidify this commitment and make us, Lord God, right here and right now, people, Lord God, who are sold out to becoming Christ-like, living the crucified life on behalf of others, even our enemies, Lord. Free us, God, from the addiction to feelings and help us to walk in truth. And help us to see and think and hear that truth in our mind about who we are, who you are, and who every other person we see is. And then help us to act on it, Lord. Make us outrageous lovers of the souls of people. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would the prayer team come forward right now? And I want to offer this invitation. If you're here this morning and want to stay and pray about any need that you have, maybe it's about loving someone that you think is unlovable. Um, I invite you to come forward in prayer. If you have children that you need to pick up, please do that first and then come back. The prayer team will wait for you to come forward. If you're here this morning and you've never uh, accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, never committed your life to them, I encourage you to go to this corner over here and uh, uh, these folks will be glad to pray with you or talk with you, answer any questions that you might have. God bless you. Go out and love outrageously in Jesus' name. Amen.